listeners. Buckle up for a new episode of VoiceOver Work and Audiobook Sampler. Where do you listen? Today is May 24th, 2022. According to author Nick Trenton, happiness is a funny thing. We can't always define it, but we know it when we have it or don't have it. Well, forget defining it. Just use scientific and psychological tips to get you to where you want to be. His new book, Neuro Happiness, is a simple guide to making your every waking moment a joyous one. Thanks for joining us today, and here is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Nick Trenton's new book, Neuro Happiness. Chapter 1. Daily Habits for Happiness Everyone wants to be happy, but how many people could honestly claim they are? In the chapters that follow, we'll be looking at what happiness is, how it works physiologically, and how we can use current scientific understanding of well-being to start creating a life that we love. Happiness starts in the brain, but that doesn't mean it's just a question of neuroscience. We'll be exploring the question of happiness over the course of 40 practical, evidence-based techniques covering daily happiness habits, joy-inducing environments, and short-term quick fixes for bad days. Finally, we'll consider how we can pull everything together to create lasting lifestyle changes that genuinely make us feel good. Let's dive in. Have a routine, but not a strict one. Picture the kind of person you imagine has their life together. They wake up at the same time every day, they have an orderly morning routine, and they have a fixed food, work, and exercise schedule that they move through predictably every day. They're probably quite productive, but are they happy? It turns out that although routine can be beneficial, you don't want to get stuck in a rut. Research psychologist Catherine Hartley and her colleagues conducted a study with 132 participants who were tracked for three or four months. Hartley wanted to see their general mental health state and overall mood, as well as examine what kind of daily routines they engaged in. What the data revealed was pretty interesting. People who were able to do something novel every day tended to report more positive, happy emotions than those who just stuck to the same old, same old. The novelty didn't have to be big. It could be something as simple as going to a new place or trying something different for lunch. The team also tracked the participants via GPS and noticed that on days when people moved around more and visited more locations, they were more likely to use words like happy, relaxed, and excited to describe their mood that day. Hartley wanted to understand more, so she had some of the participants undergo an MRI scan. Here, she found that the people who were regularly exposing themselves to novel situations actually had different brain function than those who didn't. Their scans showed an increase in brain activity between the hippocampus and striatum, areas of the brain associated with experience processing and reward, respectively. The more diverse experiences the greater the connectivity between these two brain regions and the greater the reported feelings of well-being. The team published their findings in the journal Nature Neuroscience, concluding that there was a definite relationship between our daily environments, our behaviors, our brain activity, and our overall mood. 
diversity of experience, they found, was positively correlated with improved well-being. Our results suggest that people feel happier when they have more variety in their daily routines, when they go to novel places and have a wider array of experiences, Hartley claimed. And since the research concluded just before worldwide COVID-19 lockdowns, many were interested in using the findings to maintain well-being despite being shut at home. If experiential diversity means greater well-being, then it's obvious that if we want to be happier, we need a little novelty. What does that look like day to day? Well, it's likely that each of us has... Chapter 2. Quick Happiness Fixes So, now that we've covered a few science-backed habits to build into your everyday routine, let's take a slightly different approach. Though habits can be powerful things... Sometimes you just need a quick fix to step in and help you shake a bad mood. Life doesn't always go to plan, and sometimes it's worth having a happiness toolkit to whip out in an emergency situation. If you're thinking, well, my emergency coping mechanism is food, then you're actually not too far off the mark. More on that later. In this chapter, we'll look at a handful of practical tricks you can use on the spur of the moment to lift a low mood and brighten your day. What makes a happy song happy? Have you ever noticed just how quickly certain songs can completely change your mood? Maybe you've also noticed that there are plenty of curated playlists out there, for example on Spotify, that are organized specifically with the intention of making you feel energized, relaxed, or just plain happy. But how do people know which songs make us feel good? Can a song really boost someone's mood? It turns out there are predictable characteristics of songs that people universally claim are happy. Neuroscientist Dr. Jacob Jolidge at the University of Groningen set out to unweave the rainbow and come up with the mathematical formula for a happy song, as well as the ultimate feel-good playlist. He began by closely analyzing the music of British electronic band Alba and found that every single song was about a cheerful situation, or else fun, nonsense lyrics, was a little faster than the average song, an average of around 145 beats per minute, 20 more than the average pop song, and was always written in a major key, which sounds peppy and confident. These three elements, he would soon learn, played a big role in our perception of how happy a song sounds. While Jolidge admits that a happy song is highly personal and strongly depends on social context and personal associations, he still set about compiling his own mega-playlist of the world's happiest songs. Now, it's important to note that Jolidge didn't publish this research in peer-reviewed journals, but people seem to like his analysis anyway. If you're compiling your own playlist, take a page from his book and look for the three key elements and then turn up the volume when you're feeling down. The songs were Don't Stop Me Now, Queen, Dancing Queen, Abba, Good Vibrations, The Beach Boys, Uptown Girl, Billy Joel, Eye of the Tiger, Survivor, I'm a Believer, The Monkees, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, Cyndi Lauper, Living on a Prayer, Bon Jovi, I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor, Walking on Sunshine, Katrina and the Waves. 
whether you agree with Joe Lidge's taste or not, there's no doubt that music can completely transform your mood and your life. In fact, science is also impressed with the effects that music seems to have on the human brain. A 2013 study from The Neuro by Salampur et al. has suggested that not only does music have profound and measurable effects on our brains, but that listening to novel music is especially satisfying. Using, you guessed it, fMRI scans, participants were observed as they listened to songs they'd never heard before. Afterwards, they were given the chance to buy the songs they'd heard and asked to pay an amount they felt reflected their enjoyment. The researchers noticed that the brain's pleasure centers lit up. Chapter 3. Proven Happiness Methods and Techniques We've covered a few happiness quick fixes, but in this chapter we'll be looking at longer-term, evidence-based approaches for building a happy life. These are things that we can do consistently, not only to cultivate strong, positive feelings day-to-day, but also prevent ourselves from getting overwhelmed by anxiety or depression. The Happiness Behind Positive Anticipation Have you ever noticed how often hopelessness is listed as a symptom of depression, and how frequently unhappy people talk about having no future and nothing to look forward to? Or maybe you've noticed the opposite that your mood immediately improves the moment you know you have an amazing vacation planned in a few weeks' time or a fun party happening tomorrow that you can't wait to attend. In fact, during the COVID-19 lockdowns, many people's mental health took a dip precisely because they no longer had any exciting plans waiting in their futures. It turns out that anticipation of future events plays a big role in how we feel about the present. The human brain is built to look to the future because those ancestors that could better plan and prepare for what came next had a survival advantage over those who didn't. It's what allowed our ancient ancestors to survive famines, winters, and unexpected adversities. A 2005 study in Cognitive Emotion by McLeod and Conway showed that the more pleasant future events a person had to contemplate, the better their mood in the present, and vice versa. Whenever our brains anticipate some future reward, our entire state of mind seems to pep up in expectation of that reward. Not to mention, we seem to be better able to handle any adversity we face in the present. We've spoken about the power of recalling pleasant events, like holidays, but it may be that planning such an event is half the fun. A 2020 paper in Science Advances by Agaya and colleagues identified a few noteworthy brain regions involved in positive anticipation. The ventromedial prefrontal cortex, associated with reward, the midbrain, connected to motivation and dopamine release, and the hippocampus, involved in memory creation and emotion. In fact, Agaya claimed that Anticipation can probably drive us to prepare better for actual reward consumption so that we can get the most out of it. It's also healthy, good for our mental health, to have something to look forward to, especially in a challenging situation like now. The reward is not physically here yet, but the brain somehow manages to create it in our mind. Likewise, a study published in Frontiers in Psychology found further brain imaging evidence for how we process positive anticipation. In their experiment, 
The brains of 40 study subjects were scanned while they performed an emotion anticipation task of either positive or neutral events to come. The bilateral medial prefrontal cortex was activated when people anticipated the positive outcomes, a state scientists have long understood reflects an overall sense of well-being. Combining what we know about happiness and memory, we can see that the way we plan and schedule our lives has a powerful effect on our overall well-being. We could take the time to plan pleasurable activities in the future, both big and small, and then we can make sure that as they happen, we pay deep, multi-sensory attention to what's unfolding. After the event is over, we can ensure... Chapter 4. Creating a Happy Environment As you're probably beginning to see... Happiness is so hard to define because it takes on so many forms and has so many causes. We could imagine that a happy person is one who's healthy, content, and at home in their environment. And home is the focus of this chapter. In the same way that we can't expect a plant to grow without water, soil, and sunlight, it's a fair assumption that human beings cannot be happy in the wrong environment either. Though it may not seem like that big a deal, our immediate physical environments play an enormous role in our overall sense of well-being. If that weren't the case, big corporations wouldn't bother hiring specialist architects, designers, and industrial psychologists to make sure their workspaces were conducive to happy employees. Green, the Shade of Happiness According to a new paper by Dorita et al., published in the journal NeuroImage, Viewing green spaces can help the brain improve attention and better regulate stress. Most of us won't be surprised to learn that exposure to nature calms us down and makes us more content. But what's interesting about this research is that it identifies the reason why the color green. Plenty of research has been done on the humanity healing benefits of green spaces, especially in urban areas. Individuals exposed to green environments report lower levels of stress than those in less green settings, say the authors. In this work, we were interested in asking just how green environments engage the human brain and how stress regulatory benefits come about from exposure to these environments. It's one thing to show that all these environments are good for us, but it is just as important to understand why. Our researchers did fMRI scans of 44 participants' brains while they looked at images of streets, each with varying degrees of green foliage, grass, and trees. After a two-week period, the participants were asked to come back to the lab and give both their self-reported stress levels and their opinion on which pictures they liked the best. In those people that viewed the greener spaces, a very ancient part of the brain was activated, the posterior cingulate. This area in the limbic system is associated with motivation, emotion, and decision-making in the brain. It was via activation of this area that the researchers then observed that the participants' endocrine systems were better able to regulate stress. This is an important finding. Walking in the forest or enjoying a beautiful garden is not just a nice thing to do. It has significant and measurable effects on our brains. 
The researchers are now interested in whether it's also the shape and structure of trees and plants themselves that have such a beneficial effect on us. City planners take findings like this very seriously. But as individuals, we can also do a lot to make sure there's more green power in our lives. We suspect that there's a relationship between the structure of green spaces and brain, mood, or health responses, just as there may be in music. Mozart effect experiments initially proposed that the complexity of Mozart was the reason for temporarily enhanced cognitive effects in young adults in solving spatial problems. The current understanding is that music stimulates the brain for clearer 3D and other complex forms of problem solving. So, is it... Chapter 5. The Social Side of Happiness If you've read this far, you might have started to wonder, what about other people? Don't our friends, families, and partners play the biggest role in whether we're happy or not? Well, they absolutely do. In this chapter, we'll be looking not only at the ways our relationships can influence our sense of well-being, but also ways that we can use communication and social interaction to boost our happiness levels. Happiness is a call away. Yes, it's always easier to reach out to someone via email or text, but research from the University of Texas at Austin has found that a phone call might actually be the superior way to connect with others. If you're one of those people who thinks phone calls are just too awkward to bother with, think again. Amit Kumar is a McCombs School of Business assistant professor and has co-authored a study with Nicholas Epley of University of Chicago. The two published their research in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, where they shared that people actually experience more meaningful connection when they reached out in ways that allow them to hear one another's voices. This was despite their fear of it being awkward. They asked 200 participants to predict how it would go to contact an old friend, either by email or by phone call. They then randomly assigned each participant to do either an email or a phone call and asked them again to rate how the interaction went. When it came to actual experience, people reported they did form a significantly stronger bond with their old friend on the phone versus email, and they did not feel more awkward, Kumar said, which goes against people's predictions. Similar experiments were done where people were tasked with connecting via live chat, video chat, or audio alone without video. The researchers discovered that when using their voices, people felt far more connected to one another, even though they predicted it would be easier and more comfortable to text. And to preempt the usual objection, the researchers also noted that conducting a phone call took no longer than writing or responding to an email. What makes this research interesting is that it directly addresses people's misconceptions while measuring the actual outcomes of certain behaviors. Going deeper, it turns out that the power of the human voice can be explained by our old friend, oxytocin. A paper by Seltzer, Ziegler, and Pollock titled Social Vocalizations Can Release Oxytocin in Humans explains just how important it is for our species to communicate vocally. 
That's what our voices evolved to do, after all. Seltzer et al. already knew that physical touch could stimulate oxytocin's release. But what about simply hearing someone's voice? Could that have a similar effect? The team focused on mother-daughter pairs, assigning participants to one of three groups, complete contact, speech-only contact, or no contact at all. They discovered that children receiving a full complement of comfort, including physical, vocal, and nonverbal contact, showed the highest levels of oxytocin and the swiftest return to baseline of a biological marker of stress, salivary cortisol, a strikingly similar hormonal profile emerged in children comforted solely by their mother's voice. Our results suggest that vocalizations may... Chapter 6. Your Brain and Happiness People get happier as they age. We'll begin with one common misconception, the idea that happiness belongs mostly to the young and sprightly, and that the older you get, the more miserable you'll be. In fact, this assumption may be part of the reason so many people dread getting old. They imagine that beyond a certain age, people just have to settle down to a dreary routine and accept their slowly declining health. But does the science have anything to say about happiness and aging? It does. And it turns out that getting older can be an unexpected gift in the mental health department. There is research to suggest that older people are better able to perceive happiness and less reactive when it comes to fear and sadness, i.e., they really do mellow. Leanne Williams and colleagues at the Westmead Hospital in New South Wales in Australia asked 242 people between 12 and 79 years old to view a series of photographs. These pictures were of people with different facial expressions. The participants were asked to select the photos that showed fear and happiness and distinguish them from those that showed sadness, anger, or disgust. As you can guess, their brains were monitored during this task using fMRI scans. The results were published in the Journal of Neuroscience and showed that the older people were, the more accurate they were at discerning happy expressions. In fact, teenagers were the best of all when it came to spotting fearful ones. The researchers noted that the medial prefrontal cortex showed more activation in elderly people than in teenagers. And considering that this region is associated with inhibition of the fearful responses of the amygdala, it stands to reason that older people are better at self-control and emotional regulation. The part of the brain that deals with emotional control, called the medial prefrontal cortex, was more active in elderly people when they saw fearful faces than in younger people. This region has been shown to inhibit another brain area called the amygdala, which prompts fear. Helen Fisher is an anthropologist at Rutgers University in New Jersey. She thinks there's an important evolutionary aspect to this difference. There would have been a tremendous advantage to have older people in the group with an optimistic view. You may be wondering, though, if better emotional regulation is the same as being happy. Well, not directly. But if you are able to be less neurotic, less reactive, and better able to manage your own fears, it's reasonable to imagine that you would be more content with life. Exercising better judgment isn't something we usually associate with happiness, but if you're less bothered by things that happen, you'll feel calmer 
and more in control. It's as though you can put the brakes on knee-jerk emotional responses and focus more on simplicity and improving your quality of life. In other words, your emotional maturity can develop with age. The CDC published a study in 2004 showing that younger people, 20 to 24 years old, reported feeling down for an average of 3.4 days every month, whereas older people, 65 to 74, claimed just over two days. And these results have been mirrored in other similar studies. Harvard's Tal Ben-Shahar runs a course on positive psychology and claims that even if we're young, we too can cultivate emotional maturity by learning to tolerate and accept negative emotions and remember that happiness is dependent on our state of mind, not our status or the status of our bank. If you're enjoying voiceover work and audiobook sampler, we'd love for you to leave a rating or a review on whatever platform you're finding the episode. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you again in four days.